You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. Welcome to the program. Warning, this episode does deal with sexual assault and violence. If you or someone you know is impacted, call 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or visit 1-800-RESPECT.org.au. Well, Australia has just witnessed one of its strangest International Women's Days. Yes, it was the usual day of celebration and positivity on the surface, but a quick look under the hood revealed it was also a day of distress, frustration and exhaustion. The reason being because the crisis in Canberra, of course, seems no closer to being resolved, and we're also no closer as a country in moving forward on the fundamental issues of equality, consent and safety. This week, atop of Brittany Higgins' allegations of rape and the allegations against Attorney General Christian Porter, the ABC 730 aired more allegations, this time into the behaviour of Frank Zumbo. And also Foreign Affairs Minister and Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party, Julie Bishop dropped a bombshell outlining her own experiences within federal politics, including being undermined by a group of Liberal MPs who proudly called themselves the Big Swinging Dicks. In this edition in the week of International Women's Day, we ask where to from here for our nation and how will this play out in the media? Joining me on the show to discuss, Samantha Maiden, political editor at news.com.au, a long-time member of the Canberra Press Gallery. Samantha has lived in our nation's capital as a political correspondent for over 20 years and is the author of Party Animals, The Secret History of a Labour Fiasco, which told the story of how and why the ALP lost the seemingly unlosable 2019 election. And Jacqueline Maley, a former Press Gallery sketch artist. She is now a senior writer and columnist for both the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. She previously worked with The Guardian in London and The Australian Financial Review. Her debut novel, The Truth About Her, is set to be published next month. A warm welcome to you both. Thank you, Tina. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me as well. Samantha, I'm, I'm going to start with you, as I'm sure many people feel that you were really the catapult to the now relentless allegations we're seeing spew forth as you broke the Brittany Higgins story and you coincidentally enough also have a personal connection to the now uh, deceased woman at the centre of the Christian Porter allegations. Canberra has been your home since 1998. Uh, are you surprised by the sheer volume of allegations we've seen come forward in the past month? No, I'm not surprised because I think that uh, while the allegation of an alleged rape is obviously uh, the most shocking and extreme end of these claims, that women have talked about these issues for a long time. I should say, though, that, um, you know, I think what has really set this bushfire raging is Brittany Higgins and, you know, uh, she has just been so resolute and so brave that she wanted to tell her story. And I didn't imagine, and I know that she didn't imagine, that it would set off uh, so many days and weeks of coverage. But a lot of other people have been coming forward and a lot of other things have happened organically. And I know that there are some people who want to suggest that this is some sort of carefully orchestrated plan, uh, but it's really not. And, you know, uh, Brittany Higgins didn't know that other women would come forward with their other stories. I didn't know that. And there was a lot of things that were revealed and, and came out along the way that shocked me. Jacqueline, you previously worked in Canberra and the Press Gallery. What, what was your experience? Are you, are you surprised by the breadth of allegations coming out? 
Uh, no. I mean, my period in the press gallery was fairly short by comparison. It was, um, you know, more or less the, the life of the Gillard prime ministership. And then I used to bus in and out um, before and after that just for sitting weeks. So I had the sort of point of view of not being a lifer, I suppose. And I've thought about it. I've reflected about it a lot, particularly recently, the culture of that time. And, you know, it was um, it was a drinking culture, it was a hard work culture, it was a, you know, work hard, play hard kind of culture. There was a lot of um, sex and that happened, you know, consensual sex between staffers and young people and stuff. But I do remember as a young journalist being quite shocked by how prevalent, for example, extramarital affairs amongst politicians were. And they were talked about very openly and, like, I quickly came to the conclusion that they were all at it, so to speak, and I've realised I've just defamed um, an entire class of people. But it, it, it really was normalised um, that it was a that it was a place where you could probably get away with behaviour that wouldn't be normal or wouldn't be so easily accepted in other workplaces or even just in other places, I suppose. Yeah. Can I just pick up on a point that Jackie made, which I think actually fits very neatly with a piece that a former Labor staffer has written for news.com.au today uh, called Anna Jabour, and she has basically spoken about exactly what Jackie's talking about, that there's a whole range of behaviours that seem to be normalised. Now, I'm not saying this is my experience, but the world she described in that piece is this almost kind of like a 70s, sort of 1970s madman culture where, madman culture where, you know, there was a lot of extramarital affairs, there's a lot of staffers that are flying in and flying out, there's this understanding that uh, some blokes have, uh, you know, a woman in every port, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying for a second that that is everybody, uh, but it's a really interesting observation because, you know, for most of the time that I have been in Canberra, you know, I, I'm a mother of three, so I'm virginal, <laughs> of course, and, uh, you know, like it's not really been a culture that I have participated or partaken in, but there have been times when I've thought, my God, all these people are shagging, you know, like it just seems to be in some pockets, a very sexual culture that there's a lot of sex going on. And a lot of that is consensual sex, of course, right? But I think what we're talking about, and this is something that, you know, Louise Milligan got into with the original Canberra bubble Four corners, and, you know, Anna is talking about in the piece today, is that this idea that it is a sexualized environment where sometimes women, particularly younger women, feel like they're kind of there for the taking um, for these men and it all gets very blurred and confusing because a lot of these men are older than them and more experienced and they press on them how wonderful and intelligent and brilliant and sparkling they are and they kind of then end up in these situations that they're not 100% comfortable with. Now, I suppose that happens everywhere in the world to some extent but, uh, you know, I think that the kind of, you know, what stays on to a what happens on tour stays on tour kind of people flying in flying out being away from their home the hard hard working hard drinking culture that Jackie also referred to I think that they're all factors in what the hell is going on here 
Do you think that one of the other key issues here is is gender diversity? Because federal politics seems to have a huge imbalance in that area. You know, there's very few women compared to men. But it's interesting to note that while the workplace culture there hasn't seemed to have moved on from decades ago, our public conversation around these issues is, is completely changing. And I think a lot of that is down to there being many more female voices like yourselves in the media, which completely changes the dialogue. What do you think, Jacqueline? Uh, yeah, I agree entirely. I, I think, um, you know, I think back to the time when I was in Canberra and even, you know, as a journalist, you obviously want to have dinner with contacts. That was something that's done a lot in Canberra. But just because of the lack of gender diversity, particularly at that time, um, you know, if you're meeting a group of coalition or Labor MPs um, just casually for a dinner, you would it's not unusual that you would be the only young woman, you know, on a, on a table drinking and so forth with a group of old old or middle-aged sort of bloke so that that in itself is unusual like I don't know if that would happen in many other industries when you're kind of networking um and in terms of what you've just said about media um yeah I think that we have increasingly maybe even just in the last decade um senior women in the media who have contributed to a culture where what is considered news and what is considered something that is within the purview of political coverage has shifted. And you can see the backlash to that um, and you can see that there are members of the establishment who don't like that very much at all. Well, I I think it's interesting to note that uh, let's cast our minds back to 2018, for instance. So the then Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce had to resign when the Daily Telegraph broke that he'd had an affair with one of his staffers and that his staffer was now pregnant. Now, there were many in the media at the time who thought this story was not just wrong, but also beneath them to report on. Uh, Do you think the, the high mindedness and the snobbery from political journalists about covering the political class in that way is actually more protectionist? Is it is it more to do with the old guard, which for the most part is made up of men? Uh, Jacqueline, to you first. I think that with that particular story, that particular story represented a shift between the old ways and the new ways. It was a very uh, definite inflection point. I think probably the older, more gentlemanly style of um, reporting, yeah, definitely wouldn't have reported on something like that. Um, I think in that case it was justified because of the close and unprofessional relationship that Barnaby Joyce, who then was a senior member of the government and clearly had with a staff member, and and then Malcolm Turnbull, you know, instituted the famous bonk ban and made as thereafter made it a story well, that's what he's accused of. Um, I actually think, uh, you know, the bonk ban was an entirely appropriate workplace measure for any leader to put in place in an organisation. And actually, Canberra was sort of decades behind other organisations in that respect. Samantha, what's your assessment? Well, it's interesting to remember, and this gets a bit sort of lost in the mists of time, is that when it was actually revealed by Shari Markson that Barnaby Joyce uh, was having a baby with his former press secretary, he actually didn't quit over that. So he actually held the line on that. The reason why he quit was that there was an investigation into allegations of sexual harassment uh, involving other women, which uh, ultimately ran adrift. The Nationals said that they couldn't find enough evidence of this, right? And 
uh, that was a very uh, irky affair because the woman uh, who was the complainant didn't want to be identified. She was identified. You know, that's a whole other can of worms, right? But I do think, you know, the notion, which was very prevalent in the press gallery at the time, that it was somehow not a story (laughs) that the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia had left his wife and had gotten his mistress pregnant and that there were all sorts of questions, uh, you know, about her being sort of bounced from office to office. Now, there was a lot of work done on looking into their travel and that found nothing, you know. I mean, I think Barnaby Joyce and Vicky Champion were pretty obvious, pretty clear on the fact that when they actually went through all their travel that I think that the taxpayers owed them money, there was something they could have claimed for and they didn't. But there were legitimate questions about all of that and obviously, you know, the bonk band sort of weaponised all of that and that was very interesting. But, of course, that is a story, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, Shari Markson, I think, had to endure a lot of tut-tutting and people putting pegs on their noses and acting as if, uh, you know, it wasn't a matter of public interest uh, that this had occurred when, you know... And also this idea that this is somehow new and explosive, well, look, on one level it is, it is, and I actually agree with, you know, Jackie's assessment of the whole thing. But on the other hand, I mean, come on, go back to the 1970s, right? Uh, you know, go back to Junie Morosi, right? Mm, like mm. these things have always been reported on when they got big enough that there was a perception that it was interfering with that person's ability to do their job and their interactions with their colleagues and clearly there was a perception among some that that was the case with Barnaby Joyce. So, of course, it was a story. And, you know, I look, I think there's lots of men that do great work in this space, right? Um, you know, Eric Bagshaw from the Sydney Morning Herald obviously broke the original story in 2019 of the two women uh, who said that they had been sexually assaulted when they were Liberal staffers, right? Um, and maybe there's a bit of men sometimes sort of standing back a bit and letting women kind of do the heavy lifting with some of these stories for whatever reason. Maybe that's going on. But I see something different as well, which is that when we broke the Brittany Higgins story, there was a number of news outlets that didn't touch it or barely touched it for several days. I noticed and that you as could well. Tell yeah. That yeah, and you could tell that they thought that this was something mm. uh, that was going to be a one-day wonder and maybe that's also why the Prime Minister's office didn't uh, think to tell the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, that I was making these inquiries and <laughs> spent a whole weekend answering my questions with about five different staffers involved in his office and none of them thought fit to say to the Prime Minister, oh, by the way, did you know that there's a former Liberal staffer who's alleging that she was sexually assaulted in the Defence Minister's office? And it was really only when two things happened that people started to pick the story up. First of all, obviously, Linda Reynolds publicly apologised and conceded that she shouldn't have had an employment meeting with Ms Higgins in her office in the room where she alleged she was assaulted. But more importantly, on the Tuesday morning, the Prime Minister came out and basically said, well, you know, I've watched the interview that she did with Lisa Wilkins. I've spoken to my wife, Jen, about it. He got all sorts of flack for that. But to give credit where credit is due, he actually elevated the issue and he actually, you know, essentially, you know, made it a legitimate story that people had to follow it up by taking it seriously and saying that he took it seriously and launching all of these inquiries. And it was only then 
that several mastheads actually got interested in uh, covering this. I mean, I don't think the Australian Financial Review, for example, touched it for the first day, whereas you would have thought, you know, workplace issues, these are big issues for business that, you know, it would have been a story. But a lot of people didn't want to touch it. And then there was also a little bit of some blokes kind of going, oh, we can't really get in on the kind of inside running of the Brittany Higgins story, so let's do the other side, you know, let's do uh, taking her apart. And, um, you know, that was interesting to observe as well. Since the allegations against Christian Porter were made public, we've had calls for an independent inquiry. Do you think, do you both think an independent inquiry is the answer, Samantha? Well, my personal view on an independent inquiry into workplace culture at Parliament House is, of course, Mm -hmm. I should have one. And, you know, I think that that clearly is occurring, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, there's several inquiries already in train and that's something that's going to be looked at. I have a personal view on the Christian Porter matter, Mm -hmm. which is that I can see the arguments around um, the problems of setting up a sort of quasi-judicial process that operates separate from the legal system. I fully accept that many people disagree with me and have very good arguments about that, Um, but I suppose on some level I'm also a pragmatist, right? So do I think that the Prime Minister is going to establish some sort of independent inquiry? No, I don't. So I suspect that the best way to actually potentially get some answers is through this cronial inquest option. Now, that obviously is very heavily dependent on how wide-ranging the coroner wants to make it, but the advantages of that process are as follows. One, it would obviously look at the decision to release this woman from a health facility in the days leading up to her suicide, uh, the decision to make her quarantine at home without any support. And because she was released so you know, close together with her suicide. And because she contacted the police, I think she emailed them 24 hours before she suicided and withdrew her complaint. That's already got the, you know, the the triggers there for a coronial inquest into something to look at. Now, through a coronial inquest, we may learn more about what she actually said to police, about why she wanted to withdraw the complaint. It would potentially provide an avenue for her friends and family to provide supporting evidence of all the people that she told for years. And some people say she told, you know, well, well before, you know, recent years. There was a very controversial crikey piece that tried to suggest this was some sort of repressed memory situation. Mm -hmm. She, in her own affidavit, says that it wasn't. She says it was something that she always remembered. But the coronial inquest would also be able to look at that, right? They'd be able to talk to her psychologist. They'd be able to hear evidence from other friends. It's true that that process would not provide some sort of fit and proper t- test um, for the Attorney General, nor would it make any allegation, you know, nor could it essentially test criminal allegations. But I don't think that that can happen now, right? Like, I mean, the police have made that clear that, you know, they don't have uh, a live witness, essentially. They don't have a sworn statement. I don't think any of those things can occur. But if you know, as Christian Porter says, that he is uh, completely innocent of the things, that his good name has been besmirched, let him give an, have an opportunity to give evidence uh, under oath because, you know, that would obviously depend on the coroner. But, you know, he has complained of trial by media uh, and I think it's understandable that he feels that way. 
But essentially the media has also been, you know, that 20-minute press conference, whatever it is, has been the only time he's been able to, you know, be asked any questions about this. And I think much better to ask him those questions in a courtroom-like setting uh, where he is under oath uh, to give those answers. And I think that that would be a good thing. Jacqueline, uh, what's your assessment? Do you think an independent inquiry, like Samantha suggested, really wouldn't wouldn't really lead anywhere or wouldn't? I think it's not going to happen. So mm-hmm. I think these conversations are so hypothetical. Mm-hmm. I would have issues with whether or not it it's, would be fair um, because, you know, people have made comparisons to the Dyson Hayden investigation that was done by the High Court. That was done essentially in secret or in private and nobody knew about it until the report of, you know, until we sort of broke it and, you know, the High Court announced the result of it. Um, And also, look, what's the point of it? Are you declaring that, you know, is it to, to determine whether or not Christian Porter is a fit and proper person? I guess that's what some of the what people are really debating. Is he a fit and proper person yeah. to serve as our Attorney yeah. General? I think yeah. that's... Yeah, so, I mean, I guess you, you're you going to have trouble establishing anything to possibly establishing anything, even to the to the sort of threshold of a balance of probabilities kind of threshold within that forum when you have mm-hmm. essentially a dead complainant. Mm-hmm. Um, or and as for a coronial inquest, well, that's a sort of different question. That's you know, as Samantha's just said, that you know, that's really wide-reaching and that could be very important mm-hmm. um, for the system, for system reform, and also for the friends and family of the dead woman. But it wouldn't sort of pertain to Christian Porter himself. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm hedging on this question because I really don't know. I don't know whether it would be fair or effective to have an inquiry into whether or not Christian Porter is a fit and proper person to be the Attorney General. I just don't know. Prime Minister Scott Morrison within the last 24 hours uh, has said, and and I quote, uh, he is a fine Attorney General and he is an innocent man under our law. Do you think Scott Morrison can continue to tough this one out, Samantha? What the Prime Minister said is, of course, factually correct, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Christian Porter has not been charged uh, he hasn't even really been investigated, right? I mean, the police never even got to, you know, basically having a formal statement taken from the woman. Uh, so he is innocent under the law. Obviously, there's a huge group of people that hear those words. Uh, he's a fine attorney general and he's an innocent man. And they find that very triggering because they say, well, there has been no investigation, right? But what the Prime Minister says is accurate. Um, Clearly, they're going to try and tough it out. um, But, you know, they've got two problems here, I suppose. You've got Christian Porter, who needs to make a decision of whether, you know, given what has been extracted from him, uh, he says in this process, whether he wants to keep going. He seemed pretty clear in that press conference and, you know, that he He did want to return because he said if he didn't, you know, anyone could raise allegations against anyone and essentially destroy their life and that would be it. So I think he's pretty clear he wants to return. And then the Prime Minister also has the problem of the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds, has, of course, referred to Brittany Higgins as a lying cow. Um, She says not in relation to the rape allegations but other matters. And so, you know, there's a bit of a legal tussle going on there. Um, Yeah, I mean, will they try and tough it out? Yeah, clearly. Um, And at this stage, at least, you know, there's every sign that the Prime Minister would have 
no problem with Mr Porter returning to work, you know, as soon as he feels able. Morrison's position here seems to be that no police charges equals nothing happened, basically. Do you think that's going to continue to pass the pub test amongst the general community? Jacqueline? I'm going to say very unsatisfactorily again that I I just don't know. I I find it really difficult to judge how this is going to play out Mm -hmm. in the long term. I tend to think that it is a bit of a sort of misogyny speech moment in the sense that we are seeing a huge diversion of views and a sort of schism, if you like, in political reporting and in the ability of the system to hold, you know, both what they say is sort of the rule of law and the presumption of innocence and all of those incredibly important liberal and democratic values to hold those, hold on to those and also incorporate what women are calling for, which is to have their stories listened to, to be believed, um, to have the victims of sexual assault be treated with a respect and, I suppose, um, a courtesy that that they historically have not been treated with. I think institutions probably all over the world are dealing with the conflict between those two ideas and those two principles, and not many people are doing a perfect job of it, but I do think that our government that in the last few weeks has done a rather bad job of it on a number of levels. Whether or not they're going to be punished by the poll, by you know voters in the next poll, I tend to doubt actually. But long term, whether or not it'll be looked back on with in, with a historical lens in a in a different way is sort of quite a quite a difficult or shameful or bad moment. That's a different question, and I, I tend to think maybe that 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 might happen within the general community and and let's be frank that the media. Do you think they're already moving on? Most people's social feeds are now about Harry and Meghan and, and Biden's dog being sent home. Is this moment for change slipping by, Samantha? No, I don't think it is. And to be honest, I mean, I think it is a testament to the women involved that this is a story that has now been running for nearly four weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Brittany Higgins told her story on February the 15th and next Monday when Parliament resumes, will be uh, March the 15th and it is very unusual for a story to run this long and this hard mm-hmm. and no you don't measure it by a news poll you know I know there were some people that were sort of pointing out that the news poll was taken there was I think one week uh, into the allegations and one week where it hadn't and people said oh the needle hasn't moved therefore no one cares well lots mm-hmm. of women are talking about this and Lots of younger women have been talking about issues of consent, which I think is fantastic. You know, there's that um, petition that Chantal, the woman in Sydney, um, has been putting up where lots of people have been having these discussions. It's not partisan. People have been trying to say it's partisan, but actually this is an issue that concerns women in the Liberal Party, the Labor Party and the Greens. And I think there's lots of positive things that have come out of these weeks that people have had a chance to talk about these issues and think about these issues and give pause for thought, you know, about their coverage and the way that these things have been handled in the past and the fact that community standards are changing. So I see a lot of positive things about that. But also just picking up something Jackie was saying about the rule of law, you know, I mean, I'm not a trained lawyer, but um, people that are, and, you know, Annabelle Crabb has made some really good points on this, that the rule of law is not just about the presumption of innocence. You know, the rule of law, if you want to go back to the Magna Carta, 
which seems to be about how far we've been going back in recent weeks, <laughs> is also about the right of normal people to have justice. Mm. And, you know, there's a huge debate about whether or not, given the very how difficult it is to get convictions in rape because it is, as the Peter Dutton said, a he said, she said affair, mm. uh, that I think that it's going to trigger a larger and ongoing debate about whether the rule of law do women who are sexually assaulted and raped and men who are sexually assaulted and raped, do they have access to the rule of law? You know, uh, I think it's a really big, important debate. And if you go back to, you know, Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, a speech that dropped in a moment of high drama with the speaker and Peter Slipper and all the rest of it, and it was a bit lost in that moment and people saw it as a political prism. But even then, you know, people did see uh at the time that that was a historic speech, that it had meaning and that it had um, power that people were going to debate. And, you know, I do remember that at the time on the Sunday Telegraph where I worked at the time, we did have the luxury, right, of having a few more days to plan our coverage and think about it. But our paper on that weekend was full of women talking about that speech for and against what it meant. It was a big debate. And we really did talk about those issues in the Sunday Telegraph and it did have a huge reaction, you know, and sometimes you can't tell what that reaction is until later. But, you know, I mean, I caught up with Brittany Higgins today and it has been a, you know, a life-changing experience for her. But you think about what she has achieved by telling her story in terms of all of these inquiries into workplace culture and a debate about changing the employment arrangements for staff and all of these things that plug right back into the debate about what is or isn't happening in Craig Kelly's office. You know, um, no prime minister or politician is perfect. Their responses will never give everybody what they want. But I think that the prime minister has actually moved to tackle some of these issues and things are changing and will changing and the Sex Discrimination Commission is already saying that she wants to make recommendations about an independent mechanism where people can feel freer to go to men and women to complain about their workplace arrangements and I think that we've come an incredibly long way uh, in a month, I really do, and it might not be perfect and it might not be what everybody wants but I think that, you know, change has has arrived and things are changing um, and it may take a generation or another generation of people for things to change further but that's the nature of life and protest movements and and change that's the way history works you know but I'm quite positive overall that the issues that are being aired are powerful and they're making people think you're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network and across the globe via podcast. I guess this week is Samantha Maiden and Jacqueline Maley. Let's turn to the media's performance in recent weeks. I'd like to unpack a, a number of different threads. Uh, in recent weeks, we've seen some top-notch investigative journalism. Samantha, well done, and you can collect your flower from Dave Sharma after the show, but there's there's also been oh. a, <laughs> at times... I hope it's not a gerbera because I hate gerberas. I'm very <laughs> passionate about it. Very fussy about flowers. What's, what would you prefer? I like a peony, but they're out of season. 
Ah, what a shame. Yeah. But there's also there's also been at times a deep divide in the media in, in regards to the Brittany Higgins allegations. We've seen parts of the media treat this as a political problem the government is, is working through or even as a sex scandal when it's clearly about an alleged crime and a toxic work culture through the prism of politics. I'd like to get your assessment on where parts of the media have dropped the ball when it came to Brittany Higgins. Samantha, were you surprised or exasperated or were you not shocked by parts of the media that they did not see this for what it was? Oh, of course I wasn't surprised. I mean, (laughs) no, Uh, no, I wasn't surprised. Uh, Look, I mean, I think it panned out pretty much entirely as I expected other than uh, the fact that it went a lot longer and stronger than I expected. Um, But, yeah, like I think there has been a bit of a, a cry of the angry white male about God you know, do we have to talk about rape and sexual harassment because it makes me feel very uncomfortable and there's sort of this suggestion that I or whoever's writing about it is a bit grotty and sort of shabby and sex-obsessed or something when, as you pointed out, it's not about sex at all, right? It's actually about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, allegations of a very serious nature happening in the workplace uh, no, it hasn't surprised me. I mean, uh, I think it's been entirely predictable. Okay. Jacqueline, what's your take? I think we have seen two things, I suppose. You've, uh, I mean, I spoke before about the, the establishment. I think that there are certain, you know, media guardians, I suppose, of that, and they don't like the fact that the rules have changed so this sort of stuff is reportable, it's considered news, um, the implications of Me Too are sort of threatening if you look at it in terms of the, politi- you know, the political coverage, it's sort of been the norm. And then there's also, I think, probably just a journalistic ego thing, which Sam, I think, alluded to before, which is that, like, it's not your story. Like, if it's not your story and you sort of don't have the reins on it, then you've got to find another way into it or you've got to ignore it or you've got to, like, try to trash it, I suppose, um, if you're a big journalistic ego. And there's probably a bit of that around. Um, I think um, Sam might have a view on that. I, I, I think maybe even just on a subconscious, you know, maybe not on a conscious level that that might be part of the dynamic. Um, but I, I don't think it's un, unconnected that, these stories are starting to be reported a little bit more and they're being reported by, you know, mostly women mm-hmm. um, for, for whatever, you know, for probably a variety of reasons. Yeah, and I think on that front, one of the things that has been really influential, rightly or wrongly, and there'd be arguments that this is wrongly as well, is that because a lot of people knew Brittany Higgins, they knew who she was and they really liked her right? Mm -hmm. She was a very respected person. She's very polite. um, She's very dignified. She's very lovely. And people, I think she had a name and she had a face, right? Mm -hmm. So she had all sorts of advantages that, for example, uh, the complainant against Christian Porter doesn't. She can't speak for herself anymore, which is why obviously her friends have felt the need to do that for her. But Uh, you know, I think that people really respected Brittany Higgins and they were horrified that she had, you know, this terrible story of of what had happened to her, right? Um, You know, I also think that um, 
there's lots of journalists that have followed this up very diligently and they followed it up very seriously. You know, um, uh, look, I, I note that there has been a lot of things written about Louise Milligan from Four Corners as well. She obviously broke the story of the letter to the Prime Minister and she had the original, you know, inside the Canberra bubble story that had those claims about from a former press secretary to Alan Tudge about her experiences. And, you know, the sort of things that have been written about Louise are really interesting. Um, A lot of the coverage is centred on this idea that she needs to be reined in, right? (laughs) She's out of control. (laughs) She needs to be reined in. And why won't an editor just put a stop to this, right? Like, you know, as as if, you know, like Chris Masters or some person on Four Corners when they were covering, you know, Queensland police corruption. Can you imagine someone saying, Someone just needs to rein Chris Masters in, right? You know, he's obsessed. He's writing all these stories. He needs to be stopped. Someone needs to, you know, take a firmer hand to this man, right? I just think it's really interesting. And, look, I've got no doubt mm. that people have said all sorts of nasty things about me to, to their credit, thankfully at least. They haven't really said them to my face. So I'm sure there's someone out there that thinks that I need to be reined in. Uh, you know. We'll rally well, up the lassoes, I guess. Good luck to them. Yeah. Good luck to them, I suppose. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that when um, Jackie Maley and Kate McClymont broke the Dyson Hayden story, maybe there were people that thought that they need to be reined in. When is Kate McClymont going to be reined in? Someone has she's, to she's, that she's, she's She's unreinable. <laughs> it brings to mind a certain um, media commentator who talked about women destroying the joint, all these women destroying the joint. Yeah. Remember that guy? I know, I know. And these women, they do need to be reined in. They, they just, I don't know. When are they going to learn some manners? Well, That's I would, problem, I would argue that both of you are unreinable. I let's just turning back to Christian Porter. Uh, this has again been treated by sections of the media as a political problem, but we've also seen, to varying degrees, advocacy for Christian Porter from many people uh, in the media. Most prominently, Chris Yulman and, and Peter Van Onselen, um, who've picked up Morrison's line about the rule of law. Uh, is this just a sign of diversity of views in the media, or do you think it went a, a step too far, Samantha? Oh, well, I never would suggest these men need to be reined in. God, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Look, I mean, I think to be fair to Peter Van Olsen, he actually thinks there should be an independent inquiry, so his position is a little bit nuanced. But um, he has gotten uh, dra- dragged over the coals for, you know, essentially, you know, he declares that um, Christian Porter is a friend of his and to his credit he's quite upfront about all of that. Um I, I certainly think there's been a unity of opinion and, and, you know, like I support the rule of law and the presumption of innocence as well, right? But um, there, I did, there was a point at which I did pick up a couple of papers over the weekend and thought, God, this is quite operatic, right? It's quite mm. sort of, you know, it's all getting a little, it's like watching an opera and, um, yeah, they all seem to be of one view. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe they, they have a point. I'm sure they do have point. I mean, the points that they've made that I agree with. Um, but I don't know. I haven't really seen a bloke, that many blokes, maybe Peter Hart took in the SMH, but I haven't really seen that many blokes sort of weigh in from the other side. And you do start to wonder, you know, the thing that comes to the fore here is a lived experience, right, and you hear people talking about this as well, not just in gender terms, but obviously in terms of racism. Like, I mean, if you have a lived experience of 
uh, having men undermine you at work or even being sexually harassed or, God forbid, sexually assaulted, which a lot more women than you realise have had those experiences, uh, they're obviously going to bring those experiences to the table. And if you are a man that looks at this and thinks, holy shit, any woman could make this allegation against me and what would I do if it wasn't true? That would be devastating. You know, that's a legitimate view. But I think, you know, a friend of mine said to me not that long ago that, you know, what is coming through some of these opinion pieces is this palpable fear that, you know, they can see a sort of glimpse of another world where the rules are different and it frightens them. Jacqueline, what's your take? I think everybody's entitled to their views and I don't like I I don't have any problem with, you know, people expressing those views. I do think that, you know, Samantha's point about lived experience is right. I mean, I'm just thinking about the last few weeks when I've written, you know, secondary stuff on 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 both the Brittany Higgins matter and the Christian Porter matter. And I've my inbox is full of two different types of emails. Um, emails of women disclosing their sexual assaults to me and saying, you know, go you, go all the women who are writing about this stuff. And what I can politely refer to as mansplaining um, emails from grumpy men who hate that this is in the news, Mm -hmm. who feel deeply threatened by the fact that it's being reported or that it's being reported in the way that it is, and they really fall into those two categories. There, there, There is actually a third category of man who writes in a supportive email. I, I had a woman who I know in my local area walk up to me the other day and disclose a rape because we were chatting about this stuff. It's every single woman I know has had a conversation with a friend uh, of that nature in recent weeks because it's Brittany Higgins, it's the Christian Porter stuff. It's also, yeah, the conversation that the schoolgirls are having about consent. It's just everywhere at the moment and it is very upsetting for a lot of women and I think that if you're not a woman and you you don't understand that and also if you're a good man you don't really know how prevalent it is unless women tell you and you listen to them and believe believe them so if there's anything I suppose that can come out of this maybe it's a plea a plea for that now, it's, it's pretty clear our pollies have a, a lot of work to do to, to join the 21st century, but our media also does need to improve, maybe not as, maybe not as much to be fair, obviously. Um, I'd like to get your views on how the media could up its game when reporting on the types of allegations that, that we've seen surface over the recent weeks. Samantha? Look, I think that I'm still err on the side of optimism rather than pessimism. I mean, I think that through a variety of reasons and partly because, you know, the Prime Minister got up on that Tuesday and said that he's listened to Brittany Higgins and that he was taking the issue seriously, that, um, you know, there's been a lot written about this. There's been a lot discussed about this on radio and television and newspapers. And uh, no, it's not perfect. And no, yes, there are things that you could say that you would criticise. But, you know, like uh, Jackie says, I would never criticize uh people for having a view i mean that's the point of an opinion piece you know i think let a thousand flowers bloom as long as they're not gerberas um you know (laughs) i don't i don't look at the recent weeks and say this has been a disgrace and an outrage you know i think that we've 
tackling these issues and that's good. Let's end on a positive note, if if that's possible. Uh, both of you have spent a number of years covering uh, federal politics. What changes would you like to see in place by next International Women's Day? Uh, Jacqueline, I'd like to turn to you first. In terms of positive, actual practical changes, I do think that um, Parliament House is clearly crying out for some sort of proper process by which um, staff members can complain of um, inappropriate conduct within their office. I think that's a a bit of a no-brainer. I do think that in order to really correct the culture of Canberra and to make it friendlier to women, you just probably need more women in Parliament. I don't think that's going to happen by next International Women's Day, but overall, but in a longer term, that would that would be a good a good thing. Um, And I suppose I would just like to see a culture where women do not feel ashamed to talk about this stuff and they do not feel worried about the consequences of talking about this stuff in a truthful and open way. Again, I don't think that's going to happen by next International Women's Day, but maybe it will be on that. Samantha? Yeah, I would like to plus one all of the above. I think that at a micro level, it's important that they put in place structural changes at Parliament House in terms of the appointment arrangements of both men and women. Uh, but I think, you know, this is a conversation, right? And the conversation has been going for many, many years. It didn't start, you know, when Brittany Higgins told her story, but obviously she has really turbocharged that debate. And I think that we need to think about the structures that are in place for people when they come forward saying that they've been sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, the support that they are offered. And, uh, you know, I hope that that's a conversation that will continue. On that note, I'd like to thank you both for being on Fourth Estate. Samantha Maiden, political editor at news.com.au and Jacqueline Maley, senior writer and columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Thank you for having me. Thanks as well. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual assault or violence, call 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or visit 1800respect.org.au. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll of course be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks as always to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Thanks for listening.